Well, hello and welcome to the latest episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, podcast where we take a look at the biggest stories happening across the global sports industry, particularly through the lens of deal-making and finance. I'm your co-host, Eric Fisher, U.S. Editor for Sport Business. As always, I'm joined by Chris Russo from Fifth Generation Sports, and I'm assuming like you, like me, you've been absolutely captivated by the group stage here that is now just concluding here at the World Cup as we're taping. I have been watching it closely, Eric. As I've mentioned on this podcast before, I'm heading down to Argentina tonight for some family time. And, you know, depending on how things shake out, we could have an Argentina versus U.S. game in a week or so. So that would be amazing to watch it down there. But in the meantime, both teams have some work to do. So we'll see how it plays out. Including a uh, big match with the Netherlands that'll be done by the time this episode drops here. But a lot to happen here. And it's been very exciting. And actually, in a weird sort of way, I I enjoy the time difference. These daytime games have been fun. It is great to wake up in the morning and be able to watch the games. And now each game is going to matter so much. So the excitement's certainly building. So a lot happening even beyond the World Cup. A lot of other things happening across the industry. We've got a a big franchise development in the National Women's Soccer League. We've got some uh, very interesting financial rules changes within the NBA. And at last, we've got a path of clarity with the college football playoff. But first, we're going to have a conversation with Adam Davis from Two Circles. This is a fast-growing agency that's part of the Bruin Capital portfolio. They've got a lot going on there, so we're going to spend some time with Adam. So stay tuned for that conversation. And then Chris and I will be back on the other side to break down the news of the week. Stay tuned. We're very pleased to have as our guest on Sport Business Finance Weekly, Adam Davis, Managing Director of North America for Two Circles. The Bruin Capital-owned agency has rapidly forged a leadership position on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean as a data-driven marketing agency working with more than 150 leading sports properties around the world, including the National Football League, Premier League, Major League Baseball, and Formula One. Two Circles is also currently in the market for the jersey patch opportunity for Major League Baseball's Philadelphia Phillies, which recently won the National League pennant. Davis arrived to Two Circles a little more than a year ago after a lengthy run with Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment, parent company of the National Basketball Association's Philadelphia 76ers and National Hockey League's New Jersey Devils, in which he started in corporate partnerships with the Devils and Prudential Center and rose to chief commercial officer for HBSC. Prior to joining that organization, Davis also held executive roles with the Madison Square Garden Company, Mandalay Sports Entertainment, and the New York Yankees. Adam, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. By the way, you left out my favorite job, which was I was a lift operator at Squaw Valley in Lake Tahoe. And if only I could live off $7 an hour for the rest of my life, I'd still be doing that. But unfortunately, that didn't work out. So I had to step into the world of sports. But no, thank you so much for having me. So you mentioned your uh, career journey here, and we'll uh, fast forward a little bit from the lift operator here, but you did have this great position uh, with Harris Blitzer. Uh, what attracted you to the two circles opportunity? I think what attracted me the most to two circles was just how differently they were doing it. And I get to say we were doing it as I, what I tell people a lot of times, I think in, in North America, when you look at a lot of the great agencies that are out there, CAA, Excel, Elevate, who are all friends of mine, like they're all built by guys like me. They're built by commercially led individuals. And then they try and layer on data and strategy and analytics. And what I loved about Two Circles was the model was flipped on its head. Like it was started by a gentleman named Gareth Balk, who was a head of strategy for Manchester City, built the City Football Group model, and then went out on his own as he saw this opportunity, as he likes to say, rewire sports and take sports from 
the analog era to the digital era. And, um, and that to me is what was so intriguing and exciting because I just think the world, the world has changed in the way in which we use data to make purchasing decisions, to drive sales. And the area that's probably been the slowest to catch up to that has been sports, right? On the sports business side, and you're starting to see data and analytics get used much more on the playing surface and on the field and certainly in baseball and, and other sports. But I think where the business is going of sports today is, I think two circles is ahead of the game. And that to me is what was so exciting about the opportunity to come join this organization. Adam, getting a little bit more granular, what are the lines of business of two circles? Can you give the, the listener a snapshot of kind of the, the business overall? Sure. We do a lot of marketing and consulting and marketing is such a broad term. So I'm happy to dive into that. But I would say like, if you look at it from a strategy perspective, let me take a step back. Everything that we do ultimately is to grow the pie for our clients. In a lot of ways, that means revenue. For others, it's enterprise value. But everything that we do is around how do we help grow their businesses. So in a lot of that, in from a strategy perspective, we do a tremendous amount in not only helping to build the strategy, but then executing it, which has a lot to do with marketing. And I'm happy to dive into that. We are probably the leaders, I would think, in the, in the direct-to-consumer space. I mean, we are the leaders we work, we're doing right now. It's the middle of the World Cup. We have 26 employees in Qatar as we have, we, we're the backbone of FIFA Plus. We're the backbone of NFL Plus, which has been launched this year. We've been selling NFL Game Pass in 180 countries around the world prior to this. We do something with FIBA as well. We do commercial rights. I know Eric mentioned earlier what we're doing with the Philadelphia Phillies and Certainly happy to talk more as to how we use data to help drive those processes and have a greater level of success. And then we don't talk about it as much, but we do. We do a lot in technology as well, right? When you're housing this much data and when you're processing this much data, we we do do a lot of tech stack work more internationally than we're doing in North America right now. So I'd say in the US, more focus is marketing, consultancy, D2C, and uh, rights management. Oh, and I, by the way, I almost forgot. As part of marketing, we have a huge content. We acquired a company called Livewire about six months ago. And content's now a huge part of what we do. And Livewire does all of the content and social for a couple small properties, the Premier League, Wimbledon, Formula One, which again, we're all clients of ours already. So it was a great fit into what we were doing and what we're building. You mentioned before a handful of the major agencies out there, and there are plenty of others as well, and they're all to varying degrees also moving in this kind of data-driven direction that you guys have laid your foundation on as this agency space grows more intensive and more competitive what do you kind of see as your secret sauce or competitive advantage i'm going to give you this i've been thinking a lot about who we are is i look at my comp set and if you think about the auto industry for a second and let's like rewind 10 years ago to like and in the auto industry i think a lot of my competitors are ford toyota chevy they're doing amazing they're turning record profits and they're doing it the same way. And we're this company known as Tesla and who needs an electric car, right? Like, and who's this guy, Elon Musk, and what are they doing? And I think that's the way that we view the world is we've kind of been out ahead of it for a long time of seeing where the future is going. Like, I like to use the example of the NFL and our relationship with NFL Plus. When Roger Goodell wants to go do a big deal with a traditional rights, you know, he's going to go to some of our competitors and go work deals with CBS and NBC and ESPN. I think he's got to deal with everybody. But when he goes, okay, but where's the future of my business going? How do I take my business to a D2C platform? How do I develop a brand new ecosystem for the future of the NFL? That's when he comes to two circles. I think that we will 
always maintain that competitive edge of being out on the forefront and being innovators. And I know there's stories of, hey, Mercedes-Benz is going to be the number one electric manufacturer of uh, EVs in the next 10 years. No matter what happens, Tesla will always be Tesla. And there'll be others that will try to catch up and some that might catch up and some that might pass. And I think we will always be the ones that are kind of two steps ahead of where the business is going and helping to bring our clients there in the forefront. Adam, you mentioned some of your clients earlier. Can you share a case study of where you think you really made a difference in terms of working with a client, you launched something for them, and then the results after six months or a year were incredible. Is there a good case study that you would share for the audience? Yeah, I mean, I think that a few different case studies I would actually talk about. One of the things that's, that we've been really fortunate about is in 11 years of existence, anyone that's been a client for a minimum of six months, we have a 94% retention rate. So really for us, it's about we, we want to work in long-term partnerships. I'll use the Premier League as a quick case study and example is that the work that we've been able to do with the Premier League on driving their social is growing engagement rates by over 144% over the last 12 months. But I give you that in the vein of we've been working with them for nine years. So it's not just, hey, we come in, we make an impact in 12 months, and then we're off with it. It's how do we continue to build and grow? And I think whether it's scenarios like that, we have a 50-50 partnership with the European Ryder Cup, and we sell all of the ticketing and hospitality for the next three Ryder Cups in Europe for the next 11 years. And our numbers right now for the Ryder Cup that's coming up in Rome are like off the charts of what we've been able to do from the revenue numbers and projections of the growth from the last Ryder Cup till now. And it's not like, if you think about it, golf hasn't gotten more popular. If anything, you might make the argument it's been a little bit less popular with the lines of Phil and Tiger and some of the other players. But I think it's about the approach and what it all kind of comes back to is if you sit there and say, how do you do it? Or what do they have all, all have in common is like, it's really using data to make the smartest decisions of going to find those right buyers, right? So whether it's the buyer for the European Ryder Cup, or it's using data to find the best levels of using content, but also knowing the right people to go engage, to get those lists for the Premier League, to go sell NFL Game Pass in 180 countries around the world, because we happen to know that Chris, who lives in, make it up, in Tokyo, and he also happens to be a Cincinnati Bengals fan because the first game he ever saw was Boomer and play, that we know all this about you through all the data that we process so that when we, and we know that you like to bet on sports and we know that we go to engage you, you're not only getting a message from us, you're getting a message from us in Japanese that has a customized Cincinnati Bengals advertisement because it's going to pull all of you in to then sit there and go, okay, check, check, check. And then you transact. And you know how you transact? You transact by clicking a button. You don't transact like how 95% of North American ticket sellers have 25-year-olds that still pick up the phone to try and cold call you to sell you tickets because that's not how people buy today. So I could give you a million great case studies, but I think what it all comes down to is like, how are we engaging the consumer in the smartest way possible to get the end result that our clients are looking for, whether that's engagement with the Premier League or it's purchasing power in the European Ryder Cup or, or the NFL? I mentioned the Phillies jersey patch process before, and obviously we're entering this new sort of historic realm for Major League Baseball with the introduction of jersey patches across the league with the 2023 season. In your case specifically, how is that 
sales process going? What can we expect? And how might it manifest itself differently from not only other sales processes in baseball, but other patch opportunities in other sports? Yeah. Well, first and foremost, the Phillies, Dave Buck and Jackie Cutterback and, and Rob McPherson are phenomenal, phenomenal clients. And I think that's a big part I've learned, you know, coming over from the, the team side to the agency side, right? It's about making sure you pick the right people to partner with. So I've been really blessed to work with them. I think that for me, in the experience I had in selling the NBA jersey patches, since we've had these case studies, I think to me, there's two non-negotiables and then one that's really nice to have in the world of selling these is like, the success is twofold. It's one, having a star player in a big media market, right? That again will, and if you look at the success of whether it's the Warriors, or even if you look at the Brooklyn Nets, the Brooklyn Nets is a really great example of there's no reason if you were to think about the history of basketball that you would say, well, the Brooklyn Nets, should they get more money than the New York Knicks? Well, no, not if you just think about it in generality. But what the Brooklyn Nets have is they both have the big media market, but one has Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, depending what day of the week it is. And again, that draws the eyeballs, right? TNT, ESPN, ABC, that's where they want to go. So when we were looking at the MLB landscape, I think what's really fascinating about the star power of Major League Baseball is, in general, there's not a tremendous amount of it, right? You have Shohei Otani, who's the biggest player in the world right now, Mike Trout, who's on the Angels with him. And then, you know, you look on the East Coast, I mean, it's Bryce Harper, who's been, you know, the reigning MVP and what I think he just showed everybody coming back from an injury in the postseason, how amazing he is. And Aaron Judge. And I think Aaron Judge, you know, assuming he stays in New York is you kind of get lost in the lure of the Yankees, right? Because the Yankees are such a big brand on their own. So I think when we looked at Philadelphia and we said, okay, they have one of the biggest stars in the sport. And who reaches a really young audience, number four media market in the country, second largest city on the East Coast behind New York. Like, I think for a lot of brands, it's almost helping them understand the, the size and scope of what Philadelphia is. So it's been a great process. I mean, you know, it's always fun to be out there in a process when you have a premier property like that. I think at the same time too, where we probably do it a little bit differently is every brand that we approach, there's a reason to buy. So that's where you start to wonder where the data comes into play of how does the data play itself into as you're selling traditional sponsorships is I think that, you know, you might have others that do this and they might have a laundry list of 500, 600 brands are just going to go out to and say, Hey, we're selling the Phillies. Do you want to buy the Phillies? We're much more tailored. We'll have, if we're running a global project for a brand like, say, like the All Blacks, which is a global property, we had 300 properties that we went to around the world. Now, if you sit there and say, how does data actually play itself into that? Of the 300 we went to, we had 100 meetings out of that. So you start thinking of the conversion rates that come from that. And then you take it all the way down the line that we actually drew four different offers from four different countries around the world. And the most amazing piece of that is we ended up doing deals with three out of the four. So sorry, I kind of got off off the side of the Phillies, but just to use the example, and then we'll have the same story for you when the success stories come out of the Phillies, because that's how the process is working. But, you know, I always liken it to, it's like if, if you, Chris and I were all trying to buy a house and we all bid on the same house and Eric, you win, well, then Chris and I are going to go find the next house, right? To go find for our family. What we do so well with using the data is we show how well the property makes sense for the brand that even though they lose out on the house, they still go, this is where I need to be. So we figured out how to rent them, you know, the apartment above the garage or the, uh, or the apartment in the basement. And that's just one of the ways that we're kind of pulling data into the world of partnership sales as well. Well, relating to the Phillies opportunity, but maybe more broadly looking at these Jersey patch opportunities, how do you look at some of these 
emerging categories like betting, like crypto specifically. They both have interesting dynamics around them. In the case of betting, obviously, Pennsylvania has been legalized sports betting for a while. Crypto, we've seen what's happened over the last several weeks and months. How do you look at emerging categories like that and how do they play into the equation as you look at partners? Yeah, well, so some of the emerging categories like betting, we can't do from uh, the MLB rules w- would preclude us from doing that. I think uh, you're talking to the guy that sold crypto.com on the 76ers jersey, right? So I think that there was a phenomenal gold rush that everybody got really excited about. And I still think that the crypto market is a very viable market. We're seeing who the real players are going to be and who's not. And I think sports betting similarly, we're seeing who the real players are. And I know there's others that have closed up shop over the past couple of weeks. I think properties are being a bit more careful, right? And I think that, especially when you talk about, you take the Phillies, I mean, you've never had another brand share your uniform. Like that is your sacred. So you want to make sure that it's the right brand that is representative of who you are. And I think for a lot of unicorns, so when you talk about emerging, I'll use the term unicorns. I think there's a lot of great unicorns that have gotten amazing pop. If you look at some of the stories, some of the case studies, but we share them all the time in in our our prospecting between the success Wish had with the Lakers when most of America never heard of Wish and they were the 26th most downloaded app in the Apple Store to two years later, they're number eight in the Apple Store. Like Chimes got great success stories with the Mavs, Bumble with the Clippers, so on and so forth. UKG is a B2B opportunity with the Miami Heat. So I think in the world of emerging, I think that if it's the right emerging category, I think blockchain is still a very viable place. I think that properties are really open to it. I think if it's something that's questionable, not not questionable of like, is it a risque brand, but questionable of like, hey, is this thing going to exist in three years from now? I think that comes down to the property. My advice to all of them would be get paid up front or put money in an escrow account. But I think a lot of people don't like to make the same mistake twice or learn from others' mistakes. So I think people are being cautious. That's probably a good way to put it. We talked a little bit about the competitive landscape before. A number of those other entities have moved into owned content, owned properties, as opposed to being a service provider. Is that something that Two Circles is looking to get into? When you say owned content, can you like like actually owning a golf tournament, owning a tennis tournament, owning a piece of content and actually licensing it out as the owner, as opposed to just being a broker? Got it. No, I think we're much more in the venture world. So right now, like, as I mentioned before, with the European Ryder Cup and the RNA, like we're literally 50-50 partners with them financially on all of the ticketing and premium and hospitality around the Ryder Cup. So we're much more in the world of let's put skin in the game with other properties and let's build a business together where we can both reap the benefit of the upside. But I think us taking something off their hands or competing with them directly is not not something we're interested in doing right now. What is the role of Bruin Capital day-to-day? How do you leverage their relationships and and their involvement in the business? Bruin's spectacular. I mean, I always say like, I don't know how well you guys know George Pine, but not only George Pine, David Aberdeen, Tony, the whole crew over there, they're fantastic. And, and what I mean by fantastic is, you know, I think you guys know where I came from. I'm used to working with private equity and some private equity are like, they're in your business all day, every day. And then you have others that say, hey, hit the numbers and let us know where we can be helpful. And that's certainly George and the team over there. So Bruin has been spectacular because, you know, when it comes down to doing some of these ventures, putting up real capital, um, having their support and needing their support to be able to do it, you know, it's been a yes every single time from George and team. I think from a connections perspective, I mean, George is a really well-connected individual and he's great at opening doors. And I think the other thing too is what's great for us in the world of Bruin is 
the ability to offer more holistically to properties. We just went in recently, we had a pitch to a property and they were looking for not only a lot of our services, but some experiential marketing. So the ability to go and grab Engine Shop, which is part of the Bruin portfolio and go in collectively together as that one-stop shop under the Bruin portfolio is is a great benefit for us, especially when we have a prospective client that's kind of looking to work with just one holistic group. You mentioned Livewire before. Uh, any other acquisitions on, in the mix or uh, what are you looking to potentially bring in in terms of additional skill sets if there are future acquisitions in, in the possibility? Yeah, I mean, we are, I would tell you this, we have, you could do the old, you heard it here first, but so we have two acquisitions that we are hopeful to close on both of those over the next 90 days. One will have a certain level of impact across North America. The other one won't even touch North America. But I think that what you'll see is we continue to build this flywheel of what two circles is. It's smart bits. So if you take Livewire as an example, well, let me take, let me take two circles back. Two steps is, Two Circles for a long time was that marketing consultancy company I talked about. And then they wanted to go out and bring in a rights management group and they acquired TRM 24 months ago. And then they wanted to bring in a content group and they acquired Livewire. So it's just these bits, these bits on the vertical, um, on the flywheel, excuse me, that fit strategically within the vertical. I think you're just going to keep seeing us grow in, but it will all be centered around the sports ecosystem. So you are owned by a private equity firm and those firms do ultimately uh, get involved in exits themselves or sell businesses. They Bruin just sold Delta Tray, as, as you well know, and, and I'm sure at some point there'll be an exit for two circles. Where do you think you fit more broadly in the ecosystem with potentially other companies? Where would a likely exit be for a company like Two Circles? Is it with another agency? Are there other kinds of capabilities that combined with Two Circles would really long-term be an interesting play? Have you Have you thought about that at all? Probably not as much as George has. That's a no. It's a great question. You know, I don't know. I, I I think my honest answer for you right now would be well, a couple of things. One, you know, whenever that point in time of exiting comes, that's a Bruin call, not a, a two circles call by any means. But when that point in time comes, I do think that two circles is an entity that is growing amazingly, and that was part of the reason I wanted to come here. So I think that. I would be surprised as three guys rapping on a podcast to see us be acquired into something. I think that two circles is only on a unbelievable upward trajectory that I think you'll see more acquisitions coming into two circles and two circles will be in North America, a much bigger agency than it is known as today. And the reason I say that is because, you know, I think in, in, uh, Europe, we've won sports agency of the year for the last six years in sports business. And not to use that as a awards mean whatever you want to call them. But the thing I always like to say is like, I usually do the example. I say, in, you know, in, in Europe, we're Mercedes Benz. In North America, I say we're Mercedes Benz. And I say, oh, by the way, we make automobiles because nobody knows who we are here yet, but we're a much bigger entity. You know, agency's 500 strong. 40 of that being in North America. So I think that we are, uh, we're a pretty good giant. We're a building giant that's only going to get bigger globally and, and certainly a much bigger footprint in North America at the same time. Clearly a lot happening in and around two circles. We're going to be continuing to track that across all of the sport business platforms. But for now, we want to thank Adam Davis, their managing director of North America for spending this time with us. Thank you guys. I really appreciate having me on. Hope to be back in the next 12 months. We'll share more of the fun, exciting stuff going on.
And we are back on Sport Business Finance Weekly. And we want to thank Adam Davis again from Two Circles for spending that time with us. And turning now our attention to the news of the week, big franchise developed in the NWSL. This obviously is a property we've talked a lot about this year, a lot of commercial growth, new leadership, real upward trajectory. Uh, but they've had this very troubling abuse investigation uncovering a lot of issues that had happened before in and around the league. Merritt Paulson, the owner of the Portland Thorns, was one of those sort of caught up in this and was found in an independent investigation to have been covering up some of the issues of abuse that had been occurring within that franchise. And he had already stepped down as the chief executive of this team, and now he's made a move to sell the Portland Thorns. And this really adds to what is historic sort of glut, frenzy, whatever word you want to pick here of franchises on the market. We've already got the Phoenix Suns. We've got the Ottawa Senators. We've got the Los Angeles Angels, Washington Nationals, Washington Commanders, a couple of Premier League teams. The list goes on and on here. And now we've got the Portland Thorns. And this is an interesting one here because not only do we have the backdrop of the unfortunate issues that have happened in the league, but also this is a league with a lot of wind at its back right now. It sure is, Eric. And and I certainly appreciate all of the teams for sale. I would say that what we're also seeing is emerging leagues more generally, including the NWSL and even other women's leagues really enjoying tremendous momentum. The Washington Spirit sold earlier this year for, I believe it was about $35 million, yep. which is a huge increase from some franchise fees that were in the 2 to $5 million range you know, years before or not many years ago. And so I think there is a lot of excitement about these emerging properties in terms of the thorn. They've had great attendance there. They've had great performance on the field. So yep. I do Just think- Just won the championship. Yeah. So I do think this is a property that's going to garner a lot of interest and a lot of attention. And I think more generally, there's a lot of interest among investors in buying NWSL properties, whether they be existing teams or new franchises. So the timing from that perspective is good because, you know, again, emerging leagues are, are really having a heyday this year in 2022. Yeah, and there's already been a $60 million number floated out in this particular situation, which if that comes to pass, would smash that $35 million number in Washington. But again, this really kind of speaks to a lot of the increase in the commercial uh, viability of this league, the increase in the television audience. This championship that the Thorns just won over the Kansas City Current drew a record number on CBS. And again, a lot of wind at its back here. One of the interesting things, though, about this particular situation is there's a real sort of parsing out between this franchise and the other key part of this Paulson soccer portfolio, the Portland Timbers of Major League Soccer, that are not part of this situation. Don Garber, the MLS commissioner, has been pretty steadfast that he does not see a reason that Paulson should be selling the Timbers compared to what we're seeing in the NWSL, where the commissioner, Jessica Berman, and a number of other figures in that league are very supportive of this Thorn sale now that is developing. So a very different situation there. Uh, but a lot of folks I've talked to and some of my colleagues have talked to believe that there's a real synergy there between the Thorns and the Timbers. And it makes a lot more sense for those teams to actually be sold together rather than existing separately. Well, that may be true, Eric, but I do think Merritt will have interest in people buying the thorns independently. So I do think he'll be able to execute the sale on a one-off basis. I think the broader question is whether from a community standpoint, from the sponsors, from the fans, from the players of the timber, whether this is enough, whether Merritt's stepping back from the day-to-day -day operations of that team and selling the thorn basically allows them to kind of move forward 
or whether there's still increasing pressure on merit to do something more dramatic around the timber. But with Don's support, it, it seems like the ownership and the league are, are fine with merit continuing on. And whether that is the end of it may, may depend upon some of the other constituents in the ecosystem. That's a great point. And it's going to be interesting as the 2023 season unfolds. And we don't have a specific timetable on the, the thorns process, but it wouldn't surprise me if we have some sort of clarity by the time spring rolls around and we get into next season. Uh, and as that new person comes into the fold, what is going to be sort of the dynamic? What is going to be the community acceptance of that new person versus what we see still for Merritt Paulson with the Timbers and exactly the situation you describe and what is that coexistence going to be like? So you raise a very interesting point. My sense is the community is going to really get behind the new owner of the NWSL franchise because of the existing success of that franchise on the field already, but also because people are going to want to welcome and support the change that's coming. I think more generally, we've seen not only support there in, in Portland for that team, but we've seen, you know, Angel City's been a huge success in LA. There have been other success stories across the US. So I think this is one of those franchises that with the proper ownership going forward can really thrive, whether or not it's connected to the timber or not. And so that's the positive note out of all of this. Absolutely. So much more to come on that front. Really fascinating situation. And again, we're expecting what however this lands together apart timetable what you know a lot of unknowns still but we're almost certainly going to be landing on a far and away a new record number for nwsl franchise sale so much more to come on that front but shifting gears only slightly here in the, in the world of franchise sales and values we had a very interesting development recently within the national basketball association we talked a, a lot about the nba in terms of them being sort of a forerunner in terms of embracing private equity and changing some of its rules in terms of who can own a franchise and how the cap tables work within a particular franchise. They've expanded that notion beyond just private equity that they're now allowing sovereign wealth funds, pension funds, endowments and the like to come in and have stakes in NBA teams as well. A lot of the same rules apply as had been put in place for private equity that these can only be smaller stakes. There are limits on the number of teams a particular fund can be involved in. There's no governance rights. A lot of those same provisions apply. But what's happening here is that the NBA has really sort of expanded the range of capital that can come into the league, which is a really important thing given the historic escalation we're seeing in franchise values. Yeah, this move will help to drive valuations further, which is one of their missions. It'll also provide more liquidity in the marketplace uh, for LP stake owners, which I think is important. And I think it'll make it easier for buyers that aren't necessarily worth $50 billion to get in and buy teams. So as these prices go higher and higher, without the involvement of private equity, you start really limiting the number of yep. high net worth people that can participate. So I do think this allow even, even someone, let's say like a LeBron James, who might be worth a billion dollars, you still need three to $4 billion potentially to buy some of these NBA franchises. So there's other capital that needs to be put into the mix. Absolutely. And, and you raise a great point because limiting that pool, and as we're sort of talking about with the Thorns or any of these other teams that are up for sale, any of these leagues, they want passionate figures to be the face of the franchise, to lead 
their community involvement and so on and so forth. But these numbers are just out of reach, even for folks that we would otherwise consider very, very wealthy and they need some help. And so in a lot of instances, and, and again, what this does is really just expand the pool to be able to make these deals possible. It does expand the pool of those direct deals. What I would point out, though, Eric, is that a lot of these sovereign funds, a lot of these endowments were already investing in private equity that then was investing in these yep. teams or these sports organizations. So it's not like the capital is necessarily new to the ecosystem, but now it's going to be more direct and more transparent, which I think also comes with its uh, pros and cons in, in the context of some of the issues that may arise. But yes, I do think a number of these funds were already involved, but they were making those investments through private equity. A and now, removed. Yeah. And now there will be more transparency, which I think generally is a good thing, but it also may present some challenges as well. And that sort of speaks to either the sort of kind of a governing ethos of Adam Silver since he became commissioner is having more transparency. And it really kind of, you know, that was his whole thing in terms of them being a real industry leader on legalized betting in the United States and just trying to bring everything into the sunlight and have everything open, known, and regulated. And this is another situation of having that money open, known, and regulated, to your point. But you also raise an interesting point about the issues, because as you get into some of these sovereign wealth funds from around the world, you could have issues where that money is coming from countries that don't necessarily share the same values as in the United States. And case 1A of, of about, about this is everything surrounding live golf. And so you know, which is backed by a sovereign wealth fund from Saudi Arabia. And we've got accusations of sports washing and all these kinds of things where that money comes from. So this is all going to be vetted. There are no deals potentially at play right now in the NBA. Nothing is pending. This is just a sort of a policy shift that will allow future opportunities to potentially arise. And if they do arise, they will be vetted in the customary way. But this does, if something were to happen, it does raise the notion of are you bringing in money that doesn't share the same values as already exists in the league and in this country? And the question becomes not just from the end for the NBA, but I expect other leagues will adopt this policy as well, whether that be the NHL right. or, or MLS. But do you, in a sense, take ownership of those values? Quote, are you endorsing those values if you take money from these folks? And you know, a lot that's, of fans would say yes. Yeah, and, and right. And there's probably different views and different opinions on that point. But it's certainly something now that is going to be more front and center with these direct investments and with the increased transparency. And so there's going to be some difficult issues to deal with at the NBA, but across really a number of the other leagues, which I expect will adopt a similar policy. Yeah. And I, and much like we saw with private equity and sports betting, and, you know, once one league starts to do it and the waters become safe, a lot of other leagues will follow suit. So you great raise a great point there. And particularly in the case of the NHL, you've got a lot of cross ownership, you know, whether it be Toronto or Washington or some of these other multi-team conglomerates there that there's some, you know, and a lot of them, of course, share buildings as well. And so you would expect somebody like the NHL to follow suit pretty quickly here. And the challenge, Eric, is once you do a deal with, let's say, a sovereign wealth fund or, or one of these country-backed institutions, it's hard to unwind it. It's not the same thing as like the crypto situation where crypto FTX goes bust and you know, you're repainting the roof of the Miami arena. You can kind of take the commercial deal and take your lumps and move on. When you have entities owning pieces of teams, it's harder to unwind that if, in fact, ultimately 
something happens and you have the need to do that. So it is a bigger decision, I think, as you think right. about letting this. Yeah, these, the, these things don't get altered overnight. I think you raise a great point there. And so I do think the NBA will tread carefully on this, but they are leaders and innovators. And again, I happen to think since this is kind of already happening already through the private equity folks, right. I think it's better to have it out there publicly and it does broaden the investment and, and maybe broaden the types of people that can own teams. So much more to come on that front, but turning our attention from basketball now to college football, we talked a lot about all the twists and turns with the college football playoff and moving from four teams to 12 and what's going to happen and more specifically when we finally have some clarity on this that starting with the 2024 season, we now will officially be going to a 12-team format, something that's been talked about for years really since the original inception of the CFP. We now have a sort of true full playoff structure in place. And the question is, was, of course, specifically when it was going to happen and how it was going to happen. And finally, after particularly some negotiations between the CFP and the Rose Bowl, a lot of those final logistical hurdles have been cleared, and we now have a situation in place where we're going to have a four-round playoff beginning here in just a couple of years, and really interesting in the sense that already the college football playoff was really one of the biggest and most watched events in the entire North American landscape outside of the NFL, and this is only just going to supercharge this. I agree, Eric, and I think this is a more profound opportunity, decision, change in the sports landscape than is even being reported by most media right now. I think this is almost like the creation of a new March Madness, and I don't think we've seen anything of this scale really in the last 20 years in sports. Again, there was the CFP created eight or nine years ago, and I think that did add excitement. As you mentioned, there were big ratings, but now you have a full-fledged Yep. tournament that's going to run across multiple weeks involve multiple schools and markets and the amount of media revenue that's going to generate the amount of ancillary business that's going to generate i think we've seen nothing like it in terms of the creation of effectively a new mega sports property that has huge implications it's a great point because we really have it for all that popularity and everything i just said and of course stand by we really haven't had the notion of a Cinderella story in college football because the CFP under its prior construct under this four-team format, all it did is really kind of codify the existing powers. And we had Alabama going almost every year and Clemson going almost every year. And Georgia now is sort of a regular entrant in it. You know, those top three, four, five teams are just was going every year. And now we going to 12 teams, we have the notion of somebody coming in as a Cinderella story that didn't even necessarily go undefeated or win their division could come in as an at-large. And if they get hot and win four games and really get on a roll there for a month, and all those great Cinderella stories that we love so much on the basketball front now coming into college football. Yeah, and as we've talked about before, Eric, while there may be 12 teams in the championship tournament, there are going to be another 12 teams that were in the hunt until the last week or two. Right. So you're talking about 20 markets or 25 markets that really feel like they have a shot, which is an enormous expansion from where we are now. And that's not only going to drive ratings, media rights values, it's going to drive betting, it's going to drive all kinds of ancillary businesses with companies like the Learfields of the world that do sponsorship. And so just so many other effects of this that I think are going to be profoundly good for the business of college sports. 
Yeah, and you have a real situation here where there's a lot of estimates already sort of floating out there in terms of the new money, but roughly half a billion dollars at least per year are going to come in in this incremental media rights and sponsorship inventory that will emanate from this newly created game inventory. So a huge impact across the entire North American sports industry. But also one of the interesting things is the even though the major New Year's Bulls and such are going to host the quarterfinals and semifinals and we'll have the the actual championship game go out to open bid like it already is, the first round games are going to be played on college campuses. And you so you have a real interesting situation in December, mid to late December, when you know campuses are starting to get a little dead and, and college football has finished its regular season traditionally. Now we have these new mega events that are going to happen in this first round here. And so from an event standpoint, that jolt comes in as well. It's going to be really interesting. Can you imagine the excitement at schools like Michigan are already candidates for the final fours and, and things of that nature? But think about some of these markets and what it's going to mean for attendance, for alumni excitement. It's it's pretty phenomenal. And I'd say, you know, if there is a negative out of all of this, it's probably for non-college sports sports properties where the money's probably going to have to come from somewhere. And I think college sports is going to take a bigger chunk out of the sports marketing budget than it did before. It already takes a big chunk, but I think more money is going to be put toward college sports, college football. The fourth quarter is always a good marketing and media and sponsorship time of the year. So I think if there are any losers, quote unquote, in all of this, it may be some other sports that get less of a share of the pie or some of the smaller bowls that now may seem less relevant, or some of the smaller properties that don't get the same level of rights, fees, or attention. But I do think it's good for the business of college sports overall. And could we even dare say it, the NFL taking a little bit of a haircut here that obviously we just had these phenomenal record numbers for the NFL on Thanksgiving, but if you're a big retailer looking to do a Christmas push, do you put your money on a week 14, week 15, week 16 NFL game, or do you do it in this new CFP inventory? You probably do the latter. Yeah, I'm I'm always hesitant about saying the NFL <laughs> steps back because they seem to not ever step back. So my sense, I think certainly what you say is a possibility, but my sense is we're going to see the biggest sports properties continue to prosper and there's going to be a little bit more of a haves and have nots, whereas a lot of the smaller properties might have a tougher time finding a voice in this world where there aren't very many things that aggregate audiences today of that scale, like the Super Bowl, like March Madness. And this is going to be another sports event that aggregates that kind of audience. And then from a calendar standpoint, you've got the Q4 situation that we're talking about here, but also a very interesting Q1 situation on the other side of New Year's that just within the first six, seven weeks of the new year, you've got all of these new CFP games, NFL playoffs, Super Bowl, NBA All-Star, NHL All-Star. I mean, that's just a massive way to start the year. Yeah, Daytona, you really do start off the year with a lot of exciting sports, but a lot of competition. And Q1 tends to be a more difficult sort of advertising and sponsorship uh, quarter because a lot of the money's been spent in Q4. It's certainly going to be good for these major properties, but that will be interesting to see, Eric, how, how that money gets allocated among all these big events. 
Much more to come on that front here, and obviously this big two-year now ramp up to this expanded format here. But as we come towards the end of another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, as always, we like to take a look elsewhere in the space and see what else is uh, happening. And I'll go first this week here, a bit of a twofer in the sense of uh, Major League Baseball. I talked uh, before about the hot stove market and what was going to happen on a player standpoint. A couple of big influxes of money coming in for Major League Baseball. First, we had a big deal with the Walt Disney Company, who we've also talked about in their leadership change and Bob Iger coming back. Very interesting deal this past week where Major League Baseball sold the last piece of BAM Tech, the streaming technology company that was originally created by MLB Advanced Media. There were several prior deals in which Disney took majority control of this entity. Disney now has everything in which following this last tranche in which they took on the 15% that baseball had been holding, $900 million deal, so a big chunk of new money coming into baseball and what was already a big revenue year for the league. And then what can sort of parallel to that, we had a situation with the Boston Red Sox finally announced their long-awaited jersey patch deal with Mass Mutual, 10-year pack estimated at $170 million with potential escalators to bring that to $200 million. And that's going to be the beginning of what we'll see a flurry of jersey patch deals. We'd only had one announced before with the Padres and Motorola, and we're going to have a whole bunch of announcements over the next couple of months leading into spring training as the jersey patch implementation begins with 2023. So a couple of different tranches there and a lot of new money coming into baseball. Yeah, no, that's all good news for baseball. I guess I thinking about the $900 million for BAMTech, going back to Bob Bowman and what he created ML BAM years and years ago. To see the amount of value that ultimately was achieved there is just astounding for what they built. So again, congratulations. Almost $4 billion of checks and $6 billion of enterprise value that Bob and his team built. And those folks should not be forgotten. No, absolutely. That's a tremendous accomplishment. I think the other thing I caught my eye, Eric, about the Disney situation was not only buying the stake, but also some disclosure that they intend to spend close to $45 billion on sports rights through 2027 apparently. So there's a lot of preparation, I think, that they're in the process of as they think about things like the upcoming NBA deal. deal. Yeah, so there's definitely a lot happening there. You kind of on a related note, what I looked ahead to or she looked back on, but now looking ahead is Lenny Daniels, who was head of Turner Sports and had been at the company there for, I guess, 27 years, announced that he was leaving earlier this week. And not necessarily a surprise because Discovery brought in a new global chief of, of, of Sports Luis. But I think it's an important development in the context, again, of this upcoming NBA set of negotiations because the NBA is very relationship-driven. Lenny's been a part of that for a long time. And so I think the, the real interesting thing to see is how that kind of relationship plays out as David Zaslov has Luis forged really strong relationships with Adam Silver and, and the NBA owners. I'm not, I, I don't know for sure one way or the other, but that relationship will be a factor in addition, of course, to cash in these upcoming deals. Yeah, Lenny was a real institution there and a real powerful behind the scenes player in terms of how Turner made its deals and how they went to market and went to air and so forth. And so, yes, there's new corporate structure. There's a new sheriff in town and all of that. But I think ultimately that loss and that void of uh, Lenny leaving is going to be felt. It, it sure is, Eric. And again, there it's funny, I guess about a year ago when the NFL deal was finished, the media deal, there was the notion, okay, all the major deals are done except the NBA. Well, now there's the NBA, there's NASCAR, there's CFP. It just seems like 
the opportunities continue. And a lot of these big companies like Discovery and Disney and others need to make very difficult decisions about how they spend money in a, a pretty tough economic environment. And, you know, with all these streaming services being launched and some of them losing money, it's it's definitely a complicated situation. But we obviously wish Lenny well on his next endeavor, and I'm sure he'll be doing something interesting going forward. Yeah, and we've already seen both Zaslav and uh, Disney try to pump the brakes on uh, what is going to be another record-setting negotiation for the NBA here. So much more to come on that front. But that's going to wrap up another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly. For Chris Russo, I'm Eric Fisher. I thank you very much for spending this time with us. And just as a quick disclaimer, this podcast was for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial or investment advice. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. We'll be right back. 